Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hey everyone, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate you being here to listen to this episode of the OT Schoolhouse podcast and for just being a part of the OT Schoolhouse community. I can't believe that we are almost to the end of 2021. 2020 and 2021 have just gone by so quickly. And well, things are changing so much right now within the world. We've got so much going on. And I am just so happy that you have decided to spend a part of your day with myself and Dr. Jamie Chavez, who we are having on the podcast today. Dr. Jamie Chavez is a doctor of occupational therapy. She is also a licensed occupational therapist, and she actually has a few different roles, so I want to share those with you. She works at the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California, and she is also the author of two books with her colleague, Ashley Taylor, who we will talk about a little bit later as well. The two books that she has written or co-written with Ashley are Creating Sensory Smart Classrooms and The Why Behind Behaviors. We're actually going to dive into both of those books a little bit today, or at least the contents of those. This is definitely not a sales pitch for the books, but there is a lot of great information from those books that comes out in this podcast episode. This interview with Jamie is such a great interview. You're going to learn so much about sensory processing, sensory integration, and really fostering safe environments within the classroom. And I cannot wait for you to hear it. So go ahead, put those phones in your pocket, turn the speakers up, put those headphones in, start your jog or your workout, whatever you're doing, driving, and enjoy this episode with myself and Dr. Jamie Chavez. Hey, Jamie, welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. I'm excited. You have a book out. Actually, you have two books out. We're talking about one today, Creating Sensory Smart Classrooms. And that was uh, written by yourself as well as Ashley Taylor. And I do want to allow you to give a moment to give a shout out to Ashley and talk a little bit about her as well. But first, I want to ask you about your career as an occupational therapist and just share a little bit of background about yourself. Sure. I've been an occupational therapist for nine years now, and I kind of stumbled upon the profession when I was in undergrad and just fell more and more in love with it as I went through grad school, which is always a good thing. (laughs) I wasn't Mm -hmm. backpedaling. And I've always been really passionate about children. And one of the areas of research I spent a lot of time on in grad school was children in orphanage-like settings. And as I was doing that research, so much was coming up about sensory and motor development and how those things are impacted in orphanages and foster homes and when a child is adopted. And um, so that got me down the rabbit hole of um, sensory processing and sensory integration. And my first job was in a clinic with kids of varying developmental needs. And there were a lot of sensory motor needs. And so I just continued to learn more and more about it. And that's my area of specialty now is sensory integration. Awesome. And so you actually do have your doctorate in OT. What was that experience like? Did you focus specifically on kids in the orphanage? Is that kind of where you went or sensory integration or what? Yes. My doctoral project was all on looking at occupation and the occupational performance factors in orphanage-like settings. And I actually did my four-month apprenticeship at an orphanage in Romania. Oh, wow. And worked must... with caregivers who were at that orphanage. Wow. That must have been an amazing, definitely outside of the box experience. It was. It was one of the most challenging things I've done. And also one of the richest learning experiences I've had as well. And in Romania then, is occupational therapy even really a thing out there? I know as far as, I don't know, I talk to people outside of the country and like occupational therapy isn't even a profession in some countries. So in Romania, is it a profession? Is it something, is it similar, but called something different or um, yeah. There is a profession called 
occupational therapy, and it shares the same name. But I would say they're about 50 years behind where the United States is. So they're still doing a lot of those like craft based, leather based, like leather working. Yeah, like a lot of those types of occupational therapy uh-huh. tactics. And they aren't really a well-recognized profession. And you don't really have to have a degree to get into the profession. It's more of like an associate's degree level. Um, At least it was 10 years ago. I'm not exactly sure how it's progressed since then. I haven't really kept up to date on that. And pediatric occupational therapy was pretty much non-existent. It was all working with adults with mental and developmental disabilities. Gotcha. Okay. That was going to be my next question because historically, you know, occupational therapy in America really seems like it developed based upon like a rehabilitative model. You know, after the World War One, it was really working with the armed services, right? Or people that were coming back and were injured and OT was helping them to rehabilitate and get back to quote unquote normal life. So I was wondering how that would look like in Romania. So it's mostly mental health and um, a little bit of rehabilitation. Yes. And it's very much it's not an integrative thing. It's not trying to integrate people back into society or back into their families. It's like these, they're basically outcasts and they, they're, they're these occupational therapists who are working with these people who are, who would otherwise be unsupported and not really seen as contributors to society or participants in society. Uh, Yeah. Very different. Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that. So you said that was about 10 years ago. You've been working really primarily with pediatric population. And so where are you now then? I'm at the Center for Connection in Pasadena, California. Um, The executive director is Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, who's the author, co-author of The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline. And they have several more books out as well. And she really, she has her PhD in social work and she really saw how what they were doing in mental health wasn't the full picture and there were missing pieces of the puzzle. So she started putting together a team that was more integrative and could put all the pieces together. And she saw occupational therapy as one of the biggest pieces, missing pieces of the puzzle. So she asked me to come on board and I helped start the OT department there. And I'm at home full-time with my two toddlers right now. So I'm not in the clinic full-time and haven't been for the past two and a half years, but I'm hoping to get back there in the next couple of years. Awesome. Yeah, I've heard great things about the about the center. And, you know, we've had Olivia Martinez-Haugi on the show, and she also is a part of that center. And it's just amazing how someone who is not an occupational therapist who started the center really sees the value that occupational therapists can provide for all the people that, that come into that center. So it's quite amazing that a social worker by trade, by training, um, is so invested in occupational therapy and sees our value. So that's just really cool. I really appreciate that. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into our real topic for today. It was great doing a little introduction, but I want to know, and and you have written a book about this along with um, your colleague, Ashley Taylor, but we want to know about how to support teachers with sensory regulation, self-regulation, and fostering safe, regulating environments for students with varying sensory needs. So I think a great place to start would be to start with the current problem. What are you seeing in classrooms that led you to focusing on supporting teachers within with regulating environments? Well, one of the things is that I've seen how empowered teachers feel, even when they just have this information. So many teachers don't get information. I mean, it's not taught in their classes in school. And so they don't get information about what does it mean to be regulated in order to learn and what is sensory processing and what does it mean to feel safe in your environment? So empowering teachers to be able to 
ask different questions and see behaviors in a different light. Um, and also empowering teachers to examine themselves and how they might not feel safe or regulated or have their sensory needs met in the classroom either. And how can they examine that to say, hey, I, I need to find support in this area so I can support my students better. And also just seeing how empowered students feel when teachers are actually hearing them um, and responding to their needs for being regulated or their sensory needs, which are also needs for being regulated. But yeah, I've just seen the trickle down effect and how students participate more and feel more engaged in the learning process. Gotcha. And so when you developed this book before it was a book, were you providing trainings to teachers in some capacity? That's basically what this book came out of. I had started doing some trainings a handful of years ago for teachers just during lunch hours. And then it evolved into a 10 hour course that I put together on on sensory processing. And I thought, hey, this could be a book. (laughs) I can put this down on paper. And so that's what we did. Wow, that's amazing. So it really just started with a little lunchtime, you know, conversations with the teachers. And it's amazing what that can turn into. I know right now, you know, it's a big focus for occupational therapy within the schools to not just see students individually in a pull-out model. You know, the more that we educate teachers on things that they can do within the classroom, the more that those teachers can then implement, just like what you're trying to do with this book. And I often like to say, you know, I could spend 30 minutes helping one student in a pullout session, or I could spend 30 minutes, I shouldn't say or, it's more of an and, and I can spend 30 minutes working with a teacher and that teacher can then support however many kids are in their classroom for the entire week, for the entire year, And then for the kids that they have next year and the kids that they have the year after that and the year after that. So knowledge is so powerful. And so I just love that you're um, spreading your knowledge and not keeping it all into yourself and only using (laughs) it during your one-on-one sessions, right? It's great that we're able to actually share that knowledge. That's so cool. So what have you found in regards to common misconceptions that teachers often have about sensory and regulating environments? I'm sure that when you're providing those trainings to them, you might get some pushback or just questions. What are some of those those questions or misconceptions you often hear? I think one of the things that frustrations that teachers face, and it's not just teachers, it's parents, it's us as therapists, mm-hmm. is that the sensory strategies or the regulation strategies, the co-regulation strategies, they should work all the time, every time. And it's just not true. We change from day to day. We change from hour to hour. And what works one time might not work the next time, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to work again or that it's a failed strategy. And so having multiple tools in your tool belt is something that's really important. And going along with that, setbacks are normal. Like we don't progress None of us progress, but we certainly don't develop um, or learn in a linear fashion. It's kind of two or three steps forward and then maybe one or two steps back. And it's this push-pull process. And that's true of um, meeting kids' regulatory needs in the classroom as well. I think also what I've seen, and we'll talk about some more of the, the sensory nook suggestions, but I've seen a lot of classes where teachers have self or co-regulation strategies or sensory strategies in the classroom and they allow the child five minutes or 10 minutes or three minutes or whatever the time limitation is. And I think there's a big misconception that regulation should happen within a confined period of time. And it could be that one day a child needs three minutes. To step away, or the next day they might need 10 or 25. And I think it's important to not put those time limitations because ultimately it is going to negatively impact how they're participating or how engaged they are. And if you just allow them that extra 10 or 15 minutes 
even if it seems like a waste of time to you or a waste of class or waste of instruction, or they're missing out on a big piece, ultimately they're going to feel safer and more regulated in the classroom. So the next time they do come in, they are at a better place to be more focused and engaged rather than feeling like, oh man, if I get dysregulated, I only get five minutes. And if I'm not regulated again in five minutes, like what's going to happen? I have to pull it together. So yeah, I would say those are some of them. <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly what I see too. And going to the next step, because I see this as well as, you know, sensory processing, sensory integration, it's a difficult concept to understand. And so I wanted to ask you, like, what is kind of your go-to blurb, you know, when you're explaining very quickly to a teacher what sensory processing is, what sensory integration is, and how it will impact their students that they work with? Yeah, my line is really sensory processing is how we make sense of our own bodies, how we make sense of what's happening in the environment, and how we relate to other people. and. This all sets the foundation for our regulation and regulation is the foundation for being engaged and being able to access your higher level cognitive skills, which are what you typically are doing in the classroom. Great. And that actually leads right into my next question because uh, you and I, we haven't been in the traditional classroom in a few years, nine years, it sounds like we've both been practicing occupational therapists. And so we haven't taken an anatomy class or physio class in a while. But in your book, near the beginning chapters, I know you guys kind of dive into the anatomy a little bit, uh, and more so about how the amygdala and how the, oh gosh, the hypothalamus and how they all work a little bit to create a a response, whether it be the parasympathetic or sympathetic nervous system. And so if you wouldn't mind just kind of explaining that route that a sensory stimuli kind of goes up through the brain a little bit and where that sympathetic or parasympathetic nervous system kicks in a bit. So when we talk about the system, particularly involved with the amygdala, we're talking about sensory modulation, um, which is one of the three branches of sensory integration. Um, And sensory modulation is really important for our sense of regulation and determining what is safe and unsafe in our environment. So when we have some sort of sensory stimulus come in, all of the sensory systems pass through the thalamus, except one, I think it's the olfactory maybe. It's either the olfactory or gustatory. It doesn't pass through the thalamus, which is then passed to the amygdala. The amygdala is really the center that determines um, what is safe and unsafe. Should I be fearful of this or not fearful of this? And if the amygdala is saying, hey, you should be fearful of this, that's really what triggers your fight, flight, or freeze response. If the amygdala says, hey, this is safe, you don't need to worry, you already paid attention to it and it's not a big deal, then the parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and says, hey, you can calm back down and you can carry on with your life. And the example that I like to give is if you're in a cafe and you hear a dog barking, for example, you are likely, um, if you have a typically functioning auditory system, you're going to respond to that dog and you're going to turn and attend to it. And your amygdala, your brain is going to be like, Hey, whoa, I need like, that was a really loud sound. And I need to assess, is this something I need to pay more attention to and act on? Or is it something where I can just remain calm and go back to reading my book? And So most of us would turn and see like, oh, okay, the dog's on a leash and the owner's got the dog under control. I don't have to be worried. The next time the dog barks, because our brain habituates to the responses, our brain isn't activated in the same way because our brain already knows I'm in a safe context. That dog isn't a threat to me and we don't have to be constantly triggered. But kids who do have difficulty processing auditory input, if they are overstimulated, 
they would turn every single time and have that same sympathetic response of, oh, oh my gosh, that dog's barking again. Whoa. do And they couldn't focus on reading their book. They'd get a half a page read in a half an hour where we could finish a whole chapter because our, our system is regulated and we can engage in, in something else. Yeah. And the brain really is an amazing, I don't know, organism, I guess. Um, you know, it, it's quite amazing what it can do and how it uses past experiences to also help us regulate because, you know, the brain would not be very functional if every time we got a new sensory stimuli, we weren't able to relate it to something that we had heard or seen or smelled in the past. And so um, it's amazing how it can work so quickly and how it can recall all those past experiences so quickly. But like you're mentioning, if, if the brain can't do that, then you're going to have that same experience over and over again, where it's trying to figure out, am I in a safe environment? And if it doesn't have any past experiences to reference to, you're going to kind of go through that flight, <laughs> fight, flight, or freeze every single time, as opposed to already having a reference point and knowing, yes, I'm in that safe in that safe spot. So, wow, pretty it's pretty crazy how the brain works. I, I got to give it that. One of the words that you have really keyed on is safe. And you mentioned that students have to feel safe in their classrooms, have to feel safe in the cafeteria. What do you mean by safe in relationship to a student's classroom setting? Yeah, so really when I'm talking about safety and, well, Ashley and I are talking about safety, <laughs> particularly in our books, we're talking about nervous system regulation and going back to the amygdala is the amygdala feeling safe and calm is the nervous system in balance where the sympathetic nervous system isn't taking over for the brain and the student can feel like they can just operate as usual through life which is what most of us do where we are in a calm alert state. That's really what safety is for our nervous system. And it's really rooted in our positive, trusting relationships that we have through co-regulation. It's based in a sense of control over your own body, over the environment. You know what to anticipate out of your body. You know what to anticipate out of the environment and you can trust in those things and you can trust in the people who are also around you. Yeah. And so then how do you teach teachers a way for them to facilitate that safety? Is there a specific strategy or set of strategies that you're able to help them with? Well, I think the first thing is teachers understanding, we call it the teacher student response cycle and teachers understanding how their responses and how their own regulation can impact a student's regulation and thus a student's response is really a foundational point because that's how we can get to a co-regulation state that if a student is feeling really frustrated about doing something and throws a book across the room and the teacher comes up and says, Hey, you can't do that. You need to go pick up that book right now. Then that might trigger the student even more. And then their behavior is going to be reflective of that. But if the teacher can get into a better state of regulation himself, approach the child and say, Hey, it sounds like you're getting really frustrated. Let's try to figure out what we can do differently here. The teacher is in a regulated state. The student is going to match that regulation, and then they can move forward with the problem-solving stage. And it might not happen that fluidly, but um, <laughs> but that's the general the general concept of it. Because co-regulation is really the foundation of self-regulation, and you have to have that established first. And there are so many self-regulation strategies out there, but really it's co-regulation strategies, shared moments of joy, singing songs together, making pictures together, talking about what happened over the weekend together. I think those can be really powerful co-regulation experiences between teachers and students. 
Yeah, that leads into another question that I have then. Uh, Based upon your response, you know, you mentioned co-regulation. And I think that really is an occupational therapy term. I think that, or maybe not an occupational therapy specific, but more of a mental health, a medical Mm -hmm. term per se. And I don't think it's a term that teachers would really associate with. And I don't know if they have a term for that. Maybe it's school culture potentially, but how can an occupational therapist working in a school help teachers to understand that term co-regulation? Do you think that trainings are the best way or do you think potentially getting into the classroom and uh, maybe modeling it? How can an OT who's working in a school help teachers to understand the concept of co-regulation? I think it's a both and. I think understanding the underlying concepts around it and how the nervous system works and how Self-regulation does develop out of co-regulation. What are the zones of regulation? All of that terminology is a really important foundation, but then seeing it done and in action is also just such a powerful method of learning. I just wrote a blog post about multi-sensory learning and that's what that is. I mean, you're like experiencing it. It's more of this kinesthetic experience. And then you can step in and, or the teacher can step in and say, okay, let me take over from here and see how I can do it and model it for the student in the same way that you were modeling it for that teacher. But yeah, I think, I mean, it's a process and I, I, as a parent too, like I use co-regulation so much as a parent and it's a process. I know all of the things and I've seen it modeled before and I've done it myself before and it still is, it just takes practice. And so just encouraging teachers to start somewhere and start with something and build off of that, knowing that it's never too late to change and you don't have to be afraid to do things differently and think differently because it is kind of countercultural to what a lot of the behavioral strategies are out there. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I was going to go with the next question, a little off script, but talking about that behavioral change, you know, so much for the last 100 years or more, I don't know, schools have been so focused on behavior. And we think how much progress public education has made. You know, you can't walk around and hit a kid's hand with a ruler anymore like you used to be able to do back in the 40s or whenever it was. But there is still a a very much a behavioral approach from teachers. And it can be difficult to change that mindset. And I think by bringing in that co-regulation idea, you are in a roundabout way changing the shift from behavior to regulation. And so I think that's an important context. You know, we move from potentially having clip charts to being more in tune with the child and meeting them where they are. And so I don't even know if this is leading to a question, honestly, but I I know that's a big shift right now. But it is also a very difficult shift for teachers because that is what they learn. And, you know, and it's not just teachers. True. It's parents. It's, I mean, it's society culture as a whole. I mean, I don't, it's kind of a trickle down effect and I don't want to totally call them out, but pediatricians, like that's how they're guiding parents is behavioral based strategies because they're not getting this information in school, but they're the the ones that parents pass through when their kids are toddlers and they're first acting out. And a lot of teachers are parents. And so they've gotten that information from the pediatrician and they've used that as parents. And then they're enacting it in their classroom because, and it's like this huge cultural shift of like, we need to educate so many people on this to shift. Like it's the pediatrician's, as as well as all of us therapists and teachers and parents. And, but yeah, I I mean, it is a really hard shift when it has been so embedded in our culture that, well, if a child keeps doing this, they're going to learn that that's okay. Well, if you keep attending to a child's regulation needs, then 
they're not going to keep doing it because they are going to feel safe and they are going to feel like they have their needs met and that you can problem solve together and find a different pathway forward. Yeah. And earlier you talked about, and this ties right into it. I, I wanted to talk about it when you mentioned it earlier, you talked about how sometimes a teacher or even a therapist or parent, we say you have five minutes to go get regulated. And well, there's a problem in the whole sense with that, because you're saying, I'm going to use a behavioral approach for an hour and then now go get regulated in five minutes versus what if we turn that into instead of behavioral approach for for an hour or five minutes for regulation? What if we spent that entire hour with the regulation approach and co-regulating with the student and saying, all right, yes, you're frustrated at minute number one. But let's start there with co-regulation, not wait 60 minutes later to let you have a break and potentially go get regulated. And so changing that mindset, we can't just change that mindset for five minutes a day or five minutes every hour. It really needs to be a whole paradigm, you know, full day, every minute of every day shift. And so I think that's very important. And that's awesome that, that you're working on that shift with so many other people, too. Yeah, and it's a shift from what we typically do as like rewards, punishment, even in terms of like, oh, well, I know playing outside is really regulating for you. Or I know this, the sensory nook is really regulating for you. So finish these, finish writing these two sentences, and then you can go to the sensory nook and calm down. Like, no, go to the sensory nook and calm down and then come back and finish writing these two sentences and it'll go faster. The child will be in a better cognitive state because they won't be so triggered in their lower levels of the brain that they can't access those higher levels of the brain. And that writing experience will be wired more positively in their brain rather than negatively. And yeah, I mean, we want to, we want to hurry things along and say, just write these two sentences yeah. and then you can go off and do your thing. But really it's the opposite that we need to be focused on. And like you're saying, it could be that the child spends 20 minutes in that sensory nook rather than 20 minutes at the desk struggling to write those two sentences. Yeah. And I want to talk more about the environment in the nook, but based upon what you were just saying, one of the things that OTs I don't think have been the best at and our counterpart with behavioralists are really good at is documenting and documenting how things are working. And they sit there with a notepad and they mark down every single thing that works and doesn't work. And then they're able to present these very detailed charts that show, you know, progress potentially because the student is learning over time. Hey, if I write those two sentences, I get to go to the nook a little bit faster. And so the time goes down 20 minutes Monday, 19 minutes Tuesday, whatever. But how do we document that doing the opposite, using a co-regulation approach works in a way that we can kind of show the parents that it's working because we see it working, but how do we document that it's working? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, I know that's a struggle for public health too. When you're, when you're right. doing these like preventative things, how you, how do you show that it's actually preventing something from happening when it doesn't actually happen? And when you're a behavioralist, you're looking at behaviors and that's what we're doing as OTs too. We're just looking at the behaviors in a different way. And so you can still track those behaviors and the frequency of the behavior and the duration of the behavior, but the approach to the decrease of that is so different. It's not that you are, you're moving a clip or you're giving them an incentive every time, like, oh, he only needs five incentives now. Like, no, he only needs five minutes of being in a sensory nook, or he only accessed a fidget toy three times today instead of eight times today. So I think we're, we're still looking at those same behaviors and we can document those behaviors in the same way, but the way that we're getting to the decrease in behaviors is really different. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I want to throw this out there too, is that the way that behavioralists, their structure of practice is laid out, they are given the time to actually track data. When we think about a BCBA model, they have the BCBA who is kind of, in a way, the occupational therapist per se, right? We're the person doing the evaluations, but then they have someone who is often sitting with the child for hours at a time, and they are marking down every single thing that happens. And as occupational therapists, we typically don't have that opportunity. Even an occupational therapy assistant is not going to be one to sit with a child for three hours and document every single time a student throws a book or throws a pencil or refuses to do a task or, on a different side, positively says, hey, I need to go to the sensory nook or, hey, I need a break. So it's kind of difficult for us to, to, to take data. And I know often as school-based occupational therapists, we are inclined and we're, we're very polite about it and we try our best to get help from a teacher or help from a classroom aide to take that data for us. But to be fair, they have their own jobs to be doing and it is very difficult for them to also take data on that when they're trying to, I mean, they're trying to teach. That, that's what their job is. They're trying to teach, and it's hard for them to take data. And so I do kind of wish, and I'm almost jealous of these behavioral technicians that get to spend two hours, three hours, or even all day with the student. And i just like, man, what if I had one day that I could spend with one kid the entire day? Oh, and by the way, I'm in their natural context with the teacher there who I can also explain what I'm doing. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I get a little jealous of that because they do have that time with the child that we just don't have. We typically have a half hour, maybe an hour at best a week with a student. And uh, I, I know there's studies going on right now to try and figure out dosages a little bit and compare that. But yeah, I just think it'd be awesome if we could have just one opportunity to spend an entire day with a kid and how much progress we could potentially make. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I think it's true. And I mean, I honestly hope the model is shifting, not only for the sake of OTs, for the sake of kids. I hope that the model is shifting away from ABA and maybe it's floor time, like DIR floor time specialists who are spending the three hours a day in the classroom with them. And then they are getting these co-regulation techniques rather than behavior techniques. And Floor time specialists can also measure data really well, too. I mean, in a different way. But yeah, I just hope the model is shifting away from so much of the ABA in the classroom and more of these co-regulation strategies. And yeah, strate yeah, yeah, approaches. Yeah. All right. I, it's so easy to get off topic when we start going down that route, but let's go back mm -hmm. and get on topic a little bit. Talking about classroom environment, how do you support teachers in understanding that the environment can have an impact on a student's performance and the child feeling safe? We've talked a little bit about safety and you've also discussed a little bit about the nook. So maybe you can expand a little bit more on that. Sure. Well, I would say one of the most enlightening things for teachers, or two of them actually, is one, examining their own sensory preferences. I think a lot of people think of sensory and they think of sensory processing differences, but we all have sensory preferences. And once teachers realize like, wow, I do have these sensory preferences and there are inputs I lean into and there are inputs that I stay away from. And when I can't avoid those inputs, I feel more dysregulated. Or if I can't lean into the inputs I need to, I feel more dysregulated. Like I'm a sensory being too. I think that's really enlightening and helps them see all of their students in a different light and realize why someone might have different sensory needs on one day versus another day, because teachers are realizing, hey, I have different sensory needs on a, on a daily basis as well. And also what I, I like to do with teachers is have them experience what different sensory processing differences might feel like. And that's something we put into our book as well. In each of the sensory chapters, we have an experience it box. And that's something that 
anyone reading the book could guide teachers through, just pick it up and say, hey, teachers, we're going to go through this experience. And it really makes teachers step back and say, whoa, I can understand how a child would have a really hard time learning in this environment when this is what they might be experiencing. Absolutely. And so you've mentioned the nook a little bit uh, during this this hour or so that, we've, that we're talking. And so what do you look for in a nook or when teachers are trying to develop a nook, what do you kind of recommend? Yeah, so a sensory nook is really a place where kids can go and access different sensory inputs that would have a calming impact on their bodies. And it's not something that every student might access and it might not be something that students access even on a regular basis. Um, And they might need different, like one day they might need body breaks versus going to the sensory nook, but it is again, a tool in a teacher's tool belt. And so I like a place that has pillows, something soft. I like heavier pillows because they can give more proprioceptive input calming visual input. They have some of those fish tanks, those light up fish tanks that kind of scroll around or like a lava lamp, but not one that plugs in. There's just like these things where the the bubbles move in the water, something like that. That's really calming. There might be some noise canceling headphones. Um, There might be access to music that's calming. They can put on headphones and access calming music. Fidgets might be like a basket of fidgets back there. And then I usually recommend having some sort of zones of regulation chart um, with the green and red and blue zones or different pictures of emotions so that kids can communicate by pointing to different pictures because language is a higher level cognitive skill that might drop out when kids are dysregulated, but so that they can communicate where they might be at in the process. And I think a lot of sensory nooks have timers and I really, really don't recommend having a timer in the sensory nook. I know you're asking what I do recommend, but I don't recommend putting a timer back there because it puts more pressure on the child and can make them feel anxious, which is a state of dysregulation about whether or not they're going to meet that time. Yeah. And, you know, I think I already know the answer to to this question, but what would you say to the teacher, the parent, the administrator who says, well, then what's going to happen while that one student is in the nook and is missing out on the instruction that the teacher is providing? What's your response to that? Well, I would say particularly in younger years, I feel like this answer is easier because so much of the material is repeated. A lot of the instruction, like when you're learning to tell time, you don't just learn that in one one instruction period, like you're doing it over multiple instruction periods. So I think it's easier to say like, well, hey, they, they missed some of that and they'll pick up where they left off the other day. But I think it's really important for people to see that regulation is just as important as taking in some of that cognitive information. And when kids are in a regulated state, they're going to be able to take it in faster. More likely, they'll be able to take it in faster and they'll be able to integrate it a lot more as well. So it might be that they just pick up where they left off and then whatever the teacher needs to to fill in in a quick a quick yeah. lesson it might just be that they kind of pick up there yeah. but yeah like i said in the younger years there's so much repetition that happens that i feel like it can naturally be folded into how the child's learning yeah and and i think it's also a little it's difficult to have the conversation, but it leads into understanding of sensory processing when we let the parent, the teacher, administrator understand and let them know that that child isn't missing anything that they might have been already missing anyways because they were dysregulated. So and true. so I could let them sit in that chair dysregulated for 20 minutes, not learning anything, 
or I could let them go to the nook and become regulated in less than 20 minutes and get back to the task and potentially miss less instruction. And who knows, while they're in the nook regulating, they're still listening in a little bit. And as they become more regulated, the more they might take in. And so maybe instead of missing 20 minutes, they're missing five minutes, but they're in the nook for an extra five to 10 minutes, really getting to the point of regulation. And so they're still keen in on what's being said. Maybe they're not seeing the board where the teacher's writing down one plus one or whatever, but they're still potentially taking that in auditorily. So yeah, I, I think it's really key that we let teachers know that part of it. I would agree. Yeah. So we talked about a nook, but what about a sensory lab or motor lab? What are your thoughts on a motor lab within a classroom that kind of looks more like a traditional sensory integration type of gym? Yeah. I mean, I think it's great for school sites to have that. It's great, particularly for kids who have sensory processing differences who do need more of that because I see it written a lot, which is true to a degree, but I see it written that kids know their own sensory needs and they will meet their needs and then they will like kind of move on, which is like I said, true for a lot of kids, but for sensory kids with sensory processing differences, that's not true. Their typical environments are not meeting their sensory needs and they're not able to meet their own sensory needs, which is why they have sensory processing differences. So yeah, having a space to be able to access inputs that are more intense or less intense or different than what their typical environment provides, I think is really helpful. The direction that Ashley and I really push for in our books is multi-sensory learning, where it's just folded into the curriculum and folded into the classroom engagement where kids are learning more through play and through experience and through, yeah, different ways of learning and doing and being and explicitly exploring with students how some students have strengths in some areas and vulnerabilities in some areas. And then other students, it's it might be reverse and how can those things complement each other and how can we create a learning environment where everybody can learn regardless of their strengths and vulnerabilities rather than always leaning into the strengths of auditory and visual learners, which I think is what traditionally classrooms mm -hmm. have done. Yeah, I think you're right. And again, this kind of leads right into an area that I think is not well understood within sensory integration, and that's praxis. You know, when we think of sensory, we don't think of praxis. It's not a true sense. It's not a sense at all. It's a combination of how we act on our senses uh, along with the environment. And so I want to ask you a little bit about praxis and how you explain that to teachers in the sense of learning. How does praxis impact learning and how do you explain that to teachers? Yeah. So what I've learned through the years is that praxis is really the foundation for executive functioning skills. And I think teachers know a lot more about executive function and how mm -hmm. executive function impacts learning. And basically, if we can't organize our bodies and organize our body movements and how we're moving through space, then organizing materials and objects and thoughts <laughs> within the environment is going to be even more difficult. So I think that's something that teachers can really relate to, in particular with praxis. And then do you feel that praxis can have an impact on child safety and child regulation as well? It's one of the biggest factors I think I see with kids with sensory processing differences. I mean, the confidence that we gain through our movements and being able to depend on our movements and depend on our motor responses. And when we can't rely on that, it's so frustrating. And it just becomes a, a space where you're like, I don't want to try anymore, or I just want to be goofy because it hides the fact that this is challenging. Or, And so kids with praxis, I would say are one of the 
biggest group with dyspraxia, I should say, are one of the biggest groups who need co-regulation and who really need safe environments where they can trust what's going to happen and have things more in their sense of control and build their resilience more so that they can take steps to be more independent in some of the things that are really just so challenging and take up so much cognitive space that they don't have anything left to actually learn the math problem because they're taking up so much cognitive space just on figuring out how to hold a pencil. Exactly. I agree. And, you know, that's one of the things that I find myself explaining within IEP meetings so often is just that, you know, handwriting, we make it look simple, but there are so many factors that go into handwriting. And of course, praxis is one of them. And then you add on the demand of putting a sentence together, or you add on the demand of putting multiple sentences together, and you're just adding demand on demand on demand when something hasn't been perfected. And they're trying to relearn every single time how to make a letter R, and we're trying to get them to spell a word that has two R's in it or whatever it might be. And so we're just adding demands before before the student has kind of moved beyond that motor learning or beyond that praxis ability to uh, muscle memory. And so, yeah, that's that's very difficult. I'll never re- I'll never forget this one time I was working with a kid and she just threw her book and her pencil on the floor. I think we were coloring and it was something very simple, like just coloring in in shapes. And she became so distraught that she just threw everything off the table onto the floor. And immediately she felt so sad and started apologizing and went to go pick everything up. And I was like, that's not frustration. That's not a behavior of, I don't want to do this. That's a behavior of, I can't do this. I need help. I don't want to do this because it's difficult for me. And I think that just shows the praxis. And I think that shows how dyspraxia, like you're talking about, can lead to dysregulation. So yeah, I am right there with you. I I feel like praxis is 100% something that needs to be intact in order for learning to occur in the classroom. And we actually wrote a whole chapter in our book, The Why Behind Classroom Behaviors, which is the first book we published. And we wrote a whole chapter on handwriting because we thought this is an area that causes so much dysregulation, not only for students, but also for teachers and helping teachers understand, like you said, what goes into handwriting and how many layers are present and that it's not a developmental skill. It's something that you truly have to learn through so many integration, through the integration of so many areas of the brain. So, yeah. So I think that's going to kind of wrap up what we're talking about, but I do want to dive into your book a little bit. I was reading it the other day, and I really love how you guys organize the chapters. And I actually want to give you a second to kind of talk about that organization a little bit, because you kind of talk about knowledge first, and then what a teacher may see, and then kind of what they can do based upon that. And so I want to let you share how you and Ashley kind of developed the book and and came to organize it. Yeah, like I said, it was really developed out of the trainings that I was doing. And that just happened to be how I was organizing the trainings. And it was working for the educators who I was doing the trainings with, and they liked the flow of that. So I just kept it as the flow in the chapters. And I wanted to I wanted to make it accessible while at the same time make it informative. And I want educators to have all of that information background, but then also not have to connect all the dots as to, okay, how might I see this in in the classroom? How might it be impacting kids' behaviors the most in the classroom? And then what might I see? And then how specifically might I address this? And then, like I said earlier, we wanted those experience, experiential learning things to be part of the picture as well so that teachers could take a step back and really feel like what sensory processing differences might be. 
That's awesome. Yeah, I really love it. It's super affordable. I was telling you that earlier. I, I really expected this book to be more like the price of a textbook. And I love that you guys have made it right around that $29, $30 price range. So it's actually accessible for both occupational therapists, teachers, any educator, um, which I love about that because the last thing anyone wants to do is go spend 120 bucks on a book. And I know that's difficult, but at, at the $30 price range, this is information that's so valuable that teachers can pick up and read a chapter a week. And it's going to help them better understand their students that have sensory processing differences. So that is awesome. And um, OTs too. And OTs, I mean, yes. OT, like OTs who are just starting off or even OTs Absolutely. who have been in the field for a while. I mean, I had OTs in mind when, <laughs> when we were writing this as well, because yeah. we all get different levels of training. Yeah. And we all can't afford a $600 level one Certainly. course from any of the <laughs> sensory processing uh, big trainers out there. <laughs> so yes, $30, you can't beat that for getting a very good start with sensory processing and understanding all of the senses from the five typical senses, and then also into vestibular proprioception. I think you even wrote a little bit about interoception in there, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. So it's a great place to start. I I told you I was going to give you an opportunity to shout out to Ashley, and I completely missed that part. So um, if you can share with us a little bit about Ashley, how you guys came to work together. Yeah. So um, Ashley Taylor is a PH or a PsyD. Um, she has her specialty in early childhood development. Um, she's a practicing clinical psychologist who does a lot of um, neuropsychological testing. Um, I met her at the Center for Connection and we just really hit it off and we shared a lot of clients together and we've learned so much from each other throughout the years. And I would really highly recommend all OTs to buddy up with, with somebody who does really good work on neuropsychological or psychoeducational testing and really understand those assessments and how they overlap with OT and then vice versa, being able to share as an OT how what we are seeing um, in the, the kids and students that we work with, um, how that might inform the neuropsych and psychoed assessments as well. Yeah. And, you know, I know if you're not within a big city like myself and you are in Pasadena or a, a subsect of a large city, then you're often left to work on your own as an occupational therapist. And you may not have another occupational therapist within your city or sometimes within your county that you get to work with. And, you know, we have to remember that we can get knowledge from people who are not always occupational therapists. And our mentors can be people who are psychologists, speech and language pathologists, uh, physical therapists. You know, we don't always have to have an occupational therapist. I recommend you do find occupational <laughs> therapists. And that's probably why you're listening to this podcast right now. But at the same time, learn from people who are outside of the field of OT because they have so much to teach us as well. And we also have so much to teach them. And so working together, using that uh, interaction approach, we can support students from all sides and not just from an OT lens, but from a PT, a speech, a teaching lens. So definitely agree with you, with you there. So yeah, where can people learn a little bit more about you if they want to buy the book, if they want to just get in touch with you, where can they learn about you? Yeah, so we are on Instagram at the why behind behaviors. My personal website is jamiechavezotd.webstarts.com. And then our books, The Why Behind Classroom Behaviors and Creating Sensory Smart Classrooms are both available on Amazon. Great. And we will be sure to link all of those in the show notes. So be sure to head on over to the show notes for this page. You can find that in your podcast player and all of the links to her website, to um, the Instagram pages and the books will be there for you all to find super easily. So Jamie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate having you on. And I know this specific this topic, the knowledge that you've shared today is going to help so many occupational therapists, so many occupational therapy assistants, and in turn, hundreds, thousands maybe of teachers and the students that they serve. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. It was great. Definitely. Take care and have a great rest of your day. 
Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. One more time, thank you so much to Jamie for coming on the podcast and sharing all that information about sensory processing, sensory integration, and self-regulation and safety within our students. Uh, She really obviously knows everything that she is talking about. And if you want to learn more about everything related to this topic, be sure to check out her book on Amazon. It's got a lot of great information and it is a pretty easy and also cheap read. So be sure to check that out. Thank you so much for hanging in there and listening to this entire episode. I appreciate you being a part of the OT Schoolhouse community and I look forward to our next episode together. Take care, have a great rest of your day and I'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to otschoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed.